Here we go. We'll get started now. Uh, Barry, so great to be with you. Um, this, of course, is my first digital interview. Um, for our viewers to know, uh, we've been speaking now for probably eight, nine years. And also for our viewers to know, um, I've had the benefit of investing in your funds, your strategies in the past. So, um, you know, that's why, you know, in part, I really wanted to share you, your views with, um, with our, our viewers, our new viewers, and our old viewers, I hope, too. Yeah. Great. I'm, I'm excited for this new medium. Let's do it. All right, let's do it. So today I want to get your thoughts on a couple of key items that obviously have been in the news. So we're going to talk about Bitcoin today. We're going to talk about the impact of the Reddit retail investor and really whether or not you think that's going to continue. Also, I've been hinting at this for the past number of market recaps, the, the real importance of looking at inflation. And I don't want people's eyes to glaze over on that front, but I think it is really important. And you've pointed that out to me. And, uh, and also, of course, we want to get your investment strategies. But in all four of those topics, Barry, why, why don't we first start with Bitcoin? Um, what are your views there? Because it, it's really hotly and highly debated these days yeah i would say that there the views on bitcoin are pretty heavily divided and uh but there's a lot of very very high profile very successful people that are on the plus side and on the negative side seem to be more established establishment regulatory environment people so that might be telling us something but i i think that First of all, I don't think the run-up in Bitcoin is anything that's related necessarily to the valuation of markets, equity markets, like the Reddit situation uh, and Robinhood and so on. I think it's much deeper and more fundamental than that. The, it is a function of how the central banks have responded first in, through the financial crisis in 2008, and then to COVID in 2020. And obviously every government around the world is running massive deficits. Central banks are monetizing debt, uh, which they would, before 2008, that was singularly the worst thing a central bank could even envision doing, uh, would be to monetize debt because you can't really trust polit politicians to be fiscally responsible. Um, so the world, I believe, is searching for uh, stores of value. And the historical store of value in the world has been gold. And, uh, but there's, there's a limitations on gold, just there is, like there is on Bitcoin, uh, that there isn't really that much gold in the world relative to the amount of fiat currencies around the world. And a lot of people talked about putting the US back on the gold standard, uh, which to me is practically impossible because the price of gold would have to go up a hundred or a thousand times to make up the, to be able to truly back the US currency. And every year, if they're running three, four, five trillion dollar deficits, then you have to add three, four, five trillion dollars worth of gold value, yeah. which can't be made for production. So I think Bitcoin really is uh, the world searching for a store of value. And uh, it's searching for a store of value because governments around the world are 
running massive deficits, debasing their currencies, and the debt is being monetized by central banks. So Barry, let me pick up on a couple of points there. Um, one, when you talk about um, central governments uh, monetizing the debt, describe exactly what that means. And also, we need to really understand how devalued our currencies have been. Now, I guess if everybody's playing the same game, perhaps what difference does it really make? And you know, we continue to exist and exchange using various foreign currencies, depending on the state of one's country and their economy. So maybe it doesn't make a difference. No, but I think that's a big issue is that everybody, traditionally currencies have been the shock absorbers. So if one country is running huge deficits or having much higher inflation than the rest of the world, their currency would collapse and there would be an adjustment for purchasing value. Um, but every country in the world is doing the same thing now and with currencies, it's not like a stock. If one currency goes up, another currency has to go down and they're all in the same boat. And that's exactly why the world is searching for alternatives. And right now, the Bitcoin has kind of captured the imagination of the world. Right. But you also talk about, and it is interesting to think why we would never go back to gold as, as a world class standard, because there just isn't enough gold in the world to mine. It wouldn't it wouldn't match up. The the balance sheet just wouldn't equate. But, but you could couldn't you say the same thing for Bitcoin, because we know that supply is constrained and therefore that's one of the key reasons why. I think investors want to own it in addition to what we're talking about in terms of um, perhaps people not trusting central banks or, or governments the way they have in the past. Yeah, and I think that's why it's very unlikely that Bitcoin will ever be a reserve currency. And I'm not even sure that it's a currency. I think I look at it much more of a store of value rather than a means of exchange. Although there are companies like PayPal and Tesla and various other ones that are accepting pet uh, Bitcoin. And even I even saw today the city of Miami is willing to pay its employees in Bitcoin, which I'm not really <laughs> sure. It, there are around the edges, people are using Bitcoin as, uh, as a currency, as a means of exchange. But in the, in, in the long run, I think the real attraction of Bitcoin is a store of value. And if you look at the valuation of it, um, it, it probably would have to go up more than 10 times to equal the value of the gold in the world. And that's what makes the risk reward extremely attractive. So let's talk a little bit about this, because you and I have had many conversations about Bitcoin, actually really very for the past couple of years, deciding whether or not, you know, we separately as individuals wanted to get into it. And I think right. both both you and I kind of came to the same conclusion at around the same time. Um, you, of course, helped me out with a vehicle to do that. And I, I've highlighted this to to, you know, my followers, our viewers. Um, that I, I've stepped into that QBTC fund because that was really one of the first funds where they basically do all the work for you, correct? And, and we can just kind of ride, ride the wave of the Bitcoin price, recognizing though that there is a premium in that fund because there's a scarcity of value for a fund that will do that for you. But that, that's going to change possibly. Well, there's several new funds that have come out since that one, and that will certainly erode the premiums on funds, which I think is a good thing. But the thing with Bitcoin is it's 
it's something that can, um, it, it can act, uh, even though it's supply constrained, uh, there's only 21 million Bitcoins in existence. And that means it can never really be big enough or liquid enough to become a reserve currency or so on. But the real thing is, is people are searching for things that do not have massive liabilities attached to them. And Bitcoin and gold are pretty much the only two things in the world that fit those categories. Because there's no debt associated with it. Right, but Bitcoin has a lot of advantages over gold because it's digital, which is the way of the world. We don't, you don't have to pay to store it. You don't have to insure it. Um, but what you do have to do and, and why, um, why ETFs and closed end funds like QBTC are there is the big risks is, are if you have your own wallet, one, you could lose the password and there's some very high profile people that have bought Bitcoin and lost the password uh, and, and with hundreds of millions of dollars of Bitcoin. And uh, you know, the other thing is it could be, your own wallet could be hacked. And, oh. and uh, it, so those are the things why I, I felt comfortable and you and I talked about, <clears throat> about going into funds that are performing that function for you. Right, and, and um, just to add on to that, um, you know, as I've been talking more about Bitcoin cryptocurrencies over the past couple of days, um, somebody sent me an article saying how perhaps the Canadian government feels that they should have a digital currency, right? Rather than having this in the private sector hands, it should be government run. Doesn't that, isn't that totally uh, de defeats the purpose as to why we even have cryptocurrencies? The point is we don't want them in the government's hands. Exactly. And then <clears throat> the European Central Banks said the same thing, that they're exploring issuing their own digital currency. Uh, but it's backed by state governments with massive indebtedness. So I, I don't really, I think they can issue the currencies. They're entitled to do that. Mm -hmm. And they control the regulatory environment to do it. But I, I don't really see why the, the advantage is of owning a euro or a Canadian dollar digital currency versus a nominal currency. I, I, the, that's missing the entire point to me. Right. That, that's what I thought when I saw this article that somebody sent me. But, but these are good questions. These are questions that, you know, our viewers and followers have. Well, and what, what's the difference? Well, there's a big difference. There's a fundamental difference in terms of even why the cryptocurrencies exist. People don't want to be dependent on a government devaluing or, or appreciating once the currencies. They want the autonomy, essentially. Um, but Barry, you know, I should have mentioned at the, at the outset that, you know, um, you are a veteran fixed income investor. You've had the sell side experience, the buy side experience. So so you kind of know both sides of the game and, and your timing, not only are you, I think, great in terms of um, the long term investment outlook, but also being very tactical and in, in your ability to trade and, and time things. I think that's so important. So for you right now, as it relates to Bitcoin, then we'll move on to the next topic. Um, where do you see it going? Bitcoin? Sure. Uh, well, <clears throat> 
you know, the correct answer is I have no idea like anybody <laughs> else. But as I said, that I think there's a reasonable chance that the valuation of Bitcoin equals or exceed gold. And that means that's about 10 times higher than, you know, somewhere around 450,000 to 500,000 for Bitcoin. It's at 48,000 today. Um, but I don't really look at it. What I look at it, how I look at it is risk reward. How much can it go up and what's the probability it goes up? And how much can it go down and what's the probability it goes down? Obviously something like this could go up 20 to 50 times from here by a whole bunch of valuation metrics. But it can only go down one time and it could go to zero if people completely lose interest because like gold, there's no intrinsic value to Bitcoin. And if people decide it's worth zero, it's worth zero. If they decide it's worth a million dollars, it's worth a million dollars. And uh, so that's important to recognize that there is no fundamental value to Bitcoin. Um, but it's like, is there any fundamental button? value to the US dollar or Canadian dollar. It's people, we, we simply put trust in our government to issue that and it'll be worth something we can exchange it for other goods. Um, but I, I look at Bitcoin and I say that the likelihood of it going up 10 times is at least equal if not greater than the likelihood it goes down 100%, which means in probability terms, it has significantly higher upside than downside. And that's why I'm involved in it. I'm also involved in Ethereum, uh, which isn't supply constrained, but is, has other characteristics. Thing. And these things are incredibly volatile. Mm -hmm. so, if you, you know, if, if you invest money that you need in two or three months in one of these, I don't, I wouldn't recommend that at all. But if you have capital and you're willing to take a small component of your capital, um, you know, 2% or so, I think is reasonable is basically mm -hmm. what I've done. And, you know, invest in it and, Invest in for the long term. Uh, I think the risk reward is way outweighs the risk, is much smaller than the potential rewards. And that's what I do all day. And when I find them, I <laughs> yeah, you do. Uh, I mean, you, you find them and, um, and you wait for the right. I think you have always been really great at waiting for the right opportunity to buy in. We're going to get to that in terms of your strategies in a, in a, in a minute. Um, or after this next topic, uh, which Barry, it, it's the Reddit retail investor. Um, we have seen them put major short squeezes on some stocks that, my goodness, uh, you know, they were trading at $10 and then they go up to $400. I mean, does that really make sense on a fundamental valuation perspective? But, you know, I always say to viewers and, and you, you would agree, I think that 
you know, it's not only about the fundamentals or the valuations, it's also always about money flow and sentiment. And that's clearly what we saw here, I think, with the Reddit investors. And now, of course, they were attacking short, high, highly shorted stocks. But what, what's your view right now in terms of how we should be thinking about their impact? And, and let's also understand, are they really the retail investor or do we also now know and think that they're, you know, maybe smaller hedge funds that are, have taken the other side of that institutional trade? Uh, I think that there's institutions on both sides of those trades. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they primarily started out, the shorts were institutional investors. Uh, but the one thing I don't understand with GameStop is that the, the law says you're supposed to secure the borrow of a stock before you can short it. And somehow GameStop had 140% of its public float shorted. And that's the major reason why it went from $10 to 500. Um, because somebody in the regulatory environment um, or the compliance departments of uh, the, the broker dealers that they're using to transact uh, was not doing their job. But the bigger picture is, look, these mania things happen at when market valuations are extreme and people are stretching to find things that they can do. And I don't think this is particularly any different. I'm kind of, kind of siding with the Robin Hood ones where, you know, they recognized that there was a, an opportunity because institutional investors who should have known better were shorting more stock than the public float existed and they took advantage of it. So that part of it, I sort of admire. Mm. The part that I'm uncomfortable with is the collusion part where they used online media groups in that to communicate with each other and um, collude to manipulate the price of a stock. Now, I don't know how you stop that. You can't stop people from chatting on chats and that's the way of the world today. Um, but in the end, collusion, if, if, you know, if you go back to various things where people tried to corner markets and that, where they get in trouble is when they're colluding with people and, they're the, the, and, and they avoid the core premise of a market is that everybody should have the same avail availability to information, make up your mind and buy or sell to do this. And they're around the edges of, I'm, of collusion because they don't, not everything that was stated on all these chat rooms is obviously true. There are people on there that are trying to spread false information and so on. So I'm uncomfortable with that part about it. Mm -hmm. but any, any retail investor or individual investor who recognizes that institutions are doing foolish things and make them pay, it's hard to, uh, to do anything other than kind of admire that. <laughs>
right when they were short to such a degree and almost didn't think that they could ever get caught on the wrong side of a trade. It is that is a little bit astonishing, right, in terms of um, the amount of risk that they would be taking if, if, in fact, the trade went went the other way. But just back to, to one second, you know, Barry, for viewers who, you know, might not know some of the regulatory rules and regulations, um, as it relates to collusion, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, I don't want to go down that path per se, but I think that is something that is difficult for uh, market regulators to regulate in terms of, um, you know, what's sharing of information in terms of like, obviously none of these people are corporate insiders. They're just sharing their thoughts. They're sharing their ideas. Um, they're trying to be smarter at being able to participate in the market, right? There's a lot of us who have backgrounds in it, like yourself. I did equity research. I can look at a company's balance sheets. I can kind of try to figure something out. Um, these are people who are trying to work together. And, and that goes back to the whole democratization of, of um, the the Robin Hood investor. And isn't that great that we finally have more people participating and want to participate in the markets? I think that's a it's a great thing. You don't just have to be relying on your job and making X number of dollars. You can really try to do well um, like other people who perhaps have that background. So it's it's a difficult scenario to to curtail people who are trying to do well at something. Yeah, and I, as I say, I'm kind of on both sides of it. I'm uncomfortable with the, the things that could be deemed to be manipulate market manipulation, but the democratization, as you say, you can't help but cheer for that. Yeah. Uh, I, everybody's working from home, so their boss isn't looking over. <laughs> That's a part reason why these things can happen too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I wonder though, you know, when we were going through that tight time period though, that one week where we saw day after day, the short squeeze push these stocks up 80, 100%, um, it, became, it did start to become uncomfortable from a market structure perspective and whether or not, and this is a real thing because it was it started at the beginning of the financial crisis, long before the financial crisis became apparent. You know, when hedge funds had to close down, when they couldn't find the other side of the trade, when um, they didn't know who and where their counterparty risk is. Now, I pointed out when I was on air that that was the fixed income market, which I don't even know the size difference. I should, but you will have it better. The size difference, of course, between the fixed income market and the equity markets. In other words, the equity markets aren't big enough to cause that systemic risk, I wouldn't think. But certainly your mind had to go there. Um, do you think, like, A, what do you say to that? And, and B, were you at all concerned that there could be some market structure systemic risk? Um, well, the equity markets, while they're quite a bit smaller than the fixed income markets, probably six, one sixth to one eighth the size, they're definitely big enough to be systemic because we mm. have seen in 08, and you know every 20% downtrade uh, that we've had almost every year for the last 15 years, the Fed does what it does because it, to them it's a systemic risk and could end up in a severe recession, which would be a huge problem given how indebted the world is. So the equity markets are definitely have systemic risk. Um, but I, I'm not, the Robin Hood Reddit thing, I really don't think that provided any systemic risk to the marketplace. It, it, you know, it was kind of good news and 
amusing about some people that got hurt and some people that got rich and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> in the in the end, the the entire individual investor universe that's trading individual stocks, not people that own mutual funds, relative to the mutual fund world plus the institutional world is very, very small. And it's a big function of the wealth disparity in, in the world today that the capital is con controlled by the, you know, the top five or 10 uh, right. wealth plus institutions. So I don't see it as being, um, I don't see it as being systemic in itself, uh, but that doesn't mean that we, there shouldn't be a, appropriate regulatory environments. And right. you know, the key thing about it not being systemic, every time a Fed governor was asked about it, they kind of dodged it and said, it's, it's not us, it's the regulator. And if it was systemic, they wouldn't have that answer. Okay, right. Fair, fair point. Um, speaking of regulators and the Fed, Barry, I want to get your take as well, of course, on um, uh, what we're hearing from the U.S. Federal Reserve in terms of the potential for the sizable stimulus package. And, um, you know, debate there, uh, Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary, concerned about uh, perhaps overheating the economy. We're hearing from former Fed Chair uh, Janet Yellen, who's now the Treasury Secretary, as well as Fed Chair Jerome Powell, um, that they're not worried about that. They're more worried about not having enough stimulus in the economy. Um, they do not see inflation. I think probably some of our viewers, uh, followers, are, are probably feeling a little bit of pain of inflation. Where, where do you stand on that right now? And we should also talk, this is really important, like, why do we care? Why is inflation so important to us? Right, okay, well, we'll get to inflation next, but there's a huge conundrum here that, you know, we're at, we're at record high equity prices. The credit markets are at record low credit spreads, which means their valuations are the highest they've ever been. Uh, yet we're in a recession still we had 900,000 new people file for unemployment insurance last week, this week, yeah. or reported this week for last week. And it's been averaging above 800,000 new people filing for unemployment insurance. When in 2008, the, the jobless claims numbers peaked at around 650 or 660,000. So this is way worse than 08. Hmm. Uh, and so the conundrum is, I don't think there's any question the economy needs stimulus, but the stimulus doesn't help the economy. We've had stimulus since 2008, and there is virtually no evidence that it's helped the economy. We couldn't get the economy to grow more than 2%. It didn't even get on average 2% between 08 and 2019. And central banks around the world printed $14 trillion. And the world's debt stock from 08 to 2019 doubled. 
And again, we couldn't get any economic growth. But what happened to the financial markets? The stock market went up, I don't know exactly, 18, 19% a year for 12 years in a row, mm-hmm. which completely unprecedented. So the money went into the stock market. It didn't go to the economy. And now they want to do even more at a time when the stock market's at record highs and the multiples are at record highs. I've never seen the multiple on the S&P 500 be at the highest it's ever been when the stock market's at record highs. Historically, the highest multiples are in recessions. Right. When equity prices are down 30 or 40% and the multiples are discounting an increase in earnings. So, boy, the... The central banks are really getting themselves in a in a difficult position here. And I, I can make an argument on both sides. I can see where the Fed and the government says we need more stimulus. And for the first time, and it doesn't matter whether it's a Democrat or a Republican, for the first time, people on both sides of the house are saying it's not about how much stimulus we do. It's what we do with it and how targeted it is. But, you know, an, another $2 trillion that does the same thing, spent on the same things they did for the last 12, 13 years, mm-hmm. isn't going to help me. If it didn't help it then, I don't know why it would help now. And all it's going to do is make the stock market even richer, even more, and it increases the wealth disparity. So, as I said, it's a conundrum. If they do nothing, they risk that maybe the stock market has a big correction and that flows over into the economy. Uh, and if they do something, it doesn't really help the economy. It makes the stock market even more overvalued than it is now. So there's not a lot of easy choices here. Mm-hmm. Not To me, it's not about whether they do stimulus or not. It's what they actually do with that money. And the politicians so far in the last 13, 14 years have proven to be rather inept at providing stimulus where it's really needed. Where do you think it's needed? Well, it's needed at the low end of the economy. And it's small businesses who make up 80, 85% of the employment. Uh, And it's, it doesn't work to send people $1,400 checks or $2,000 checks because it doesn't stimulate the economy. It either is an income replacement and it allows people to subsist. So it's, it's just unemployment insurance. It's mm. not stimulus to the economy. And it's, it's needed at the low end and they just don't seem to be able to focus that. And it's partially, I think, because the political system in the US, one, it's so divided. And on top of that, the United States has probably five times more lobbyists than any other country in the world. And every stimulus bill ends up being 
you know, used as it, it just money start flowing to people and causes that do nothing for the intent that it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And they don't be able to change that process at all. So Barry, where does that, we haven't even talked about Canada, but we're going to kind of keep it big pictures. I know you invest more in, in U.S. markets. Um, where does that leave you though, then in terms of um, where you're finding opportunities? And I do want to also, of course, mention that, um, you know, you founded and were the CEO of Merit uh, Asset Management. Um, now you've got DMAT Capital, where you manage money for institutions as well as family offices. But then you also uh, run a couple of funds for Horizon as well. Um, the Horizon um, Active High Yield Income Fund and the Horizon Absolute Return Bond Fund, if I've got those right. Um, so w- what's your approach these days? Well, everything in the world is virtually at record valuations. Um, And I think the reason they are is because the bulk of the investors in the world are saying that valuations are really high, so we need to stretch to get an absolute return. I think that's the wrong thing to do. I'm doing the opposite. Hmm. I'm keeping everything my primary positions are high quality, short duration and uh, high yield bonds and shorter duration US treasuries um, because I think that interest rates are rising and credit spreads are at unattractive values. But the single biggest problem with fixed income is that it's highly, highly correlated to the equity markets at a time when the equity market is at record highs. And the whole point of fixed income is one, to provide income, and two, to provide negative correlation to stocks when stocks go down. Fixed income, and and this is a lot because of central bank policies, fixed income has no yield, and it has high positive correlation to the equity markets. So therefore, I'm sticking in the areas that have zero to negative correlation to the equity markets because I think at some point bond yields are going to rise enough, which isn't going to take much from here, maybe even less than a half of 1% in the 10-year bond yield in the U.S. to go higher, where it's going to cause a sell-off in the equity market. And at that point, then you're going to have a rally in the bond market, bond yields are going to fall. The 10-year treasury yield today is 120. Mm -hmm. I think the range for this year, we started the yield about 90 basis points. It's at 120 right now. I think the range for the year will be around 1.5 to 0.5. Wow. So I think if we get another- That's massive volatility, Barry. It's huge volatility, but there's huge volatility in everything because liquidity is enormous. There's so much money sloshing around and valuations are at record highs in virtually every asset class. So I really think it's important uh, to own some things that can go up if the stock market goes down. And that's structuring my funds right now. 
negative correlation to the equity market is my mantra. Hard, hard to find though, but but you do also think though, it sounds as though when we do get um, a move in the bond market, if in fact we do see bonds um, sell off, you think that there's gonna be an opportunity to get back in because ultimately you see rates going where? And I'm gonna have a sip too. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think they're going up because inflation is going through a cyclical rise. And I guess maybe we'll touch on inflation later. But I, I strongly believe that the secular trends in inflation remain downward. We're not at the end of the 30, 35 year decline in inflation. I think there's still a fair amount more to go. But that okay. doesn't have years where uh, inflation can rise for cyclical reasons. And you think that's where we're at right now. We will continue to see some upticks. So on that front, actually, we should also talk about something to our viewers that, that you and I talk about. Um, I, I think you think that there's some nice opportunities in the commodity space right now. Yeah, I think oil is attractive long term uh, with the electrification of the vehicle fleet and that it's hard to be bullish on oil. Uh, but in, in the short term, uh, the supply demand characteristics as the, as the economies reopen, which I think will be slower than the market thinks. But, you know, you can't get much lower demand for jet fuel mm -hmm. than there is now. I know that you and I both travel a lot, fly a lot, and we haven't been doing much of that in the last year. Uh, and when it's safe, obviously, there's a lot of pent up demand for travel. Uh, airlines demand for jet fuel are, are going to rapidly increase. And also the increase from driving as we get closer to summer, uh, people are still gonna drive a lot more. The driving season will still be there. I think that there's reason to expect that oil could continue to rise somewhat from here. I mean, we've gone from kind of 30 to 60, uh, which is a double and maybe there's another 10, $12 in it. And, and you've got the combination of still more upside in the oil price, as well as energy equities and bonds uh, are generally the cheapest valuation in, in relative to the rest of either the stock market or the high yield bond market. So that makes energy an, an attractive thing. And I actually just put some, I, I just made a reasonable investment into a, a Canadian energy fund that I think you're involved in too, right? I am, we can say who it is. <laughs> Rafi Tomasian, Canoe Financial, yeah. It, it, and maybe Raphael will listen. Who knows? Yeah, he'll listen and I'll have him on too. Um, Barry, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, and I, I posed, I asked uh, viewers um, if they wanted to send in questions for you. So why don't we get to them? I think that's really great to be able to do. Um, it, I love this format. It's incredible. Um, okay, so one question. Uh, what is Barry's view of the Fed's plan to introduce interest rate control or yield curve control like they did after World War II? Does he think that this is to try to get inflation up 
so that debt can be paid back in cheaper dollars? Does he have a feel for what level of interest rates in the 5, 10, 20 year area the Fed will step in and stop rates from rising? So were they really going to get in the curve um, to institute interest rate control if he thinks one is going to happen? Does he think this will be a successful policy to achieve the goal of paying back debt with cheaper dollars? Okay, so there's two real questions there. Are they gonna do yield cur curve control, which to keep rates from rising too much, which would protect against a significant downtrade in the equity market? Uh, the answer to that is yes. Um, I definitely think that if rates rise too much, the Fed will come in and do, and they've done it before. We had Operation Twist, where they sold two-year bonds and bought 30-year bonds to flatten the yield curve and lower the long-term cost of capital. They've done it many, many times before. And I think if the yield curve steepens too much, um, they will do it again. And they're doing it because they're protecting against the more long-term rates rise, the riskier it is on an equity sell-off, which then could have implications for the economy. So yes, they will do that. I wouldn't be surprised if they're actually a little bit stealthily doing that already. Hmm. Uh, they haven't really come out. I think they want to keep it as dry powder for themselves. <clears throat> the, the other part of the question, excuse me, let me have a little drink. Okay. <clears throat> uh, that relates to monetizing the debt and and trying to create inflation so that we can, the debt to GDP ratios can go down, I completely disagree with because I don't think they have the power to do that. If, if they keep rates at 1% and inflation goes to 5%, um, which is reflation and therefore the debt to GDP ratio, nominal GDP would go up and the absolute amount of debt would stay the same or go up at a slower rate, debt to GDP ratios would go down. The, the people that have tried to do that in the world, mm -hmm. um, particularly the Zimbabwe, and the Weimar Republic in Germany after World War I, they've tried to do that. They ended up in hyperinflation and they defaulted anyway. Wow. Um, I don't believe that that is possible to work because I think what would happen if they keep interest rates at 1% when inflation is at 5% and every country is doing it so that the the currencies are no longer the shock absorber, uh, then I think what would happen is credit spreads would widen six or 700 basis points and the cost of capital for every corporation in the world would skyrocket. And when they did that, their earnings would go down, the stock market would collapse and we'd be, go into a severe recession or depression and it wouldn't work. So I, I just, I, I, I think it's naive to expect that the government can, or the Fed could create inflation while keeping interest rates low. They could do that, 
but it's naive to believe that there wouldn't be other shock absorbers or other consequences to do that. And I think the consequences would be quite severe actually. Hmm. Uh, just on that reflation point, do you, do you see the reflation trade working? I mean, that's what's kind of been moving in the markets lately. Is that a good trade? Um, that's, that's a good question, whether it's working or not. I think the market's going up and certain parts of the market are going up more than others. Um, but I don't see evidence that the economy, if, if you're having 900,000 people file for unemployment, um, yeah. what's reflating? The stock market's reflating, the rich are getting richer and the economy is not doing anything. So it's hard for me to say that reflation is working unless your definition of working is the top 1% who already have more money than they could possibly spend, uh, get more money. If that's your definition, then, then it's working. <laughs> okay, that's a fair point. Uh, Barry, let me ask uh, another question. Um, this is from Bruce. Um, could you kindly ask Barry on the direction of the Canadian dollar against the US dollar and what is the best vehicle he would use to park cash while waiting for the stock market to correct? Hmm. Right. I think, uh, so the first one, the Canadian dollar, um, I think is uh, at the high end of its valuation, but I don't see it collapsing anytime soon. If oil's going up, which I think it is, it's hard for the US dollar or the Canadian dollar to go down versus the US. Uh, but I think two years from now, the Canadian dollar will be weaker it'll be probably in the 60s rather than 80s cents US. Yeah. And the, as in terms of short-term places, um, the Horizons Fund that we're managing, the Absolute Return Fund uh, is a good place to hang out. I also think that short duration high yield funds um, three years and under high yield, uh, which is a cash alternative to me, earning two and a half percent when cash is zero with no correlation to the equity market and very low volatility because the duration is below one year. Uh, I think both of those are attractive places to be. Okay. And that, that's why you're managing both of those funds. I mean, because it's up to you to determine what kind of fund you want to manage. And they just wanted you as the manager. Um, uh, right. So, uh, Barry, let, let me ask the, another question. This is from Darren. Um, what are Barry's thoughts about investing in rate reset preferred shares? And is he currently investing in them? Uh, if he is investing, what segment industry credits, uh, credit rating, uh, remaining reset duration, reset spread, et cetera? Um, and um, you know, Barry, you and I have had comments, conversations, you know, about preferreds in the past. So what are your thoughts here? Uh, I'd be a seller of preferred shares right here. The rate resets, though, as the caller has identified, are the best part of the preferred share area because it protects you against rising yields. But on the other hand, I'm more concerned longer term about rates going down than going up. So that, that, that protection isn't worth that much to me. Uh, but the key thing about preferred shares in Canada is there's no institutional market 
for them. It's held 100% by individual investors and they're always, always buying or always selling. There's no two-way flow in them and therefore they're extremely volatile. If the equity market goes down 20%, the preferred shares have gone down 30 to 40%, which is illogical because they're higher up in the capital structure of a company, but they're way less liquid and that's why they do that. Um, so I look at preferred shares, they're not a, an asset class to invest in, they're an asset class to trade. And with equity markets at record highs, the valuation of per share, preferred shares are also at record highs and people are buying them for yield. And if you buy anything for yield right now, by definition, you're paying an extraordinarily high price to do that. So I would wait for the inevitable correction in the stock market, have them down 30 or 35%, and then I would buy them. So preferred share taste on $25 pars. And mm -hmm. a lot of them are, 25, 26, $27 now. I would look, look to be a buyer when they're 16 or $17. And then when they return to 25, I would sell them and not keep them for yield because they're a very, very poor risk reward because of their liquidity characteristics and, the, and their correlation to the equity market, which is you know, it's one-to-one -to, -one to the stock market with higher volatility. That's not what you want to own at record highs in the stock market. Fair, fair point. Um, so many discussions to really have with preferred. So we'll, we'll keep our eyes on them in, in, in case there is a, a correction there, Barry. Um, but, you know, I've, I've always talked to you in the past as well about preferreds and you got you, you to gotta really know what you're doing and understand that there's not the institutional flow to kind of back them up. Um, Barry, uh, another question here. Uh, we'll do just two more uh, if you can stay with us. Um, okay, I'd be interested to hear Barry's thoughts on the situation in debt capital markets, specifically for energy companies. Some observers say investors and banks are much less willing to lend to oil and gas given the recent COVID crash and other factors. Does Barry see this as, an, as impeding companies from bringing on new production in the coming months and years? And Barry, you know, you and I really kind of started talking, well, obviously a number of years ago, but also um, you were right on the money in terms of, a, of having a high yield energy fund when everybody was basically banking that, that these companies were going to go bankrupt, but you saw a great risk return when they were, I don't know, 60, no, like 40 cents on the dollar, 50 cents on the dollar. So what, what's your view these days? 2016, 2017, when oil went to $26, it went yeah. from 126. And the high yield market was discounting 75% of ener high yield energy companies going bankrupt. And I looked at that and said, it's impossible because 75% of them go bankrupt. The oil production is gonna be cut in half in the United States. And, and the whole reason that oil went from 110 to 26 is because US shale oil production went from 6 million barrels a day to 11 million barrels a day. And if they went from 11 million back to five or six, the price of oil theoretically should go back to $100. <laughs> um, so I bought a whole bunch of distressed energy thing. We made 28% in 11 months 
And when the trade was over, we sold it all and went back into cash and waited for the next one. Uh, I'm still looking for that opportunity thing, but and to answer the caller's question, uh, there's no question that banks are inhibiting capital to energy companies because of the long-term outlook as to what, you know, what's the demand for oil going to be if every car and truck and even airplane is electric. Uh, now that begs the question, how do you, what do you use to generate electricity since nobody wants to buy nuclear plants and cold fusion doesn't seem to be realistic and mm -hmm. renewables are still in their infancy. To me, natural gas is the, which is basically burnt to, you know, it's, it's flared when they're drilling for oil. Uh, we may find out that natural gas in the future uh, is becomes very valuable or it's not very valuable right now. But it's hard to come up with a, a scenario where the demand for oil goes nothing, does anything but other than go down every year for the next 20 years, in my mind. Um, so that would be, it would be rational to me that you don't want to lend to, to companies drilling for oil if the demand is going to decline, if it's in secular decline. Um, energy is still cheap right now relative to the rest of the high yield debt market. Hmm. Uh, but longer term, uh, I think it's going to be difficult for energy, oil and gas companies to raise capital in the debt markets. Hmm. Okay. Um, Barry, I'm just going to take this one last one. It kind of wraps up what we've been talking a little bit about in terms of um, the need to keep your eye on interest rates. This is from uh, Phil Lupta, uh, Phil. Um, and he says, uh, uh, wondering if uh, Mr. Allen can address the issue of how much a change in rates, especially with that U.S. 10-year yield, will be required to impact the markets. It's only a slight exaggeration to say that today's rates would have to be just a rounding error than in the past. Or are rate changes, real or implied, just signaling at this stage? Well, I uh, there's a lot of people that have opined that the 10-year Treasury yield can go above 2% without impacting stocks. Uh, I'm not in that camp uh, unless, it, unless it took maybe two or three years to go from 120 to 2%. Um, and I've been doing this for 40 years. And I, one thing I know is markets don't, don't move in one direction orderly for several years at a time. Post-08. <laughs> uh, um, so it does matter how fast rates go up to the equity market. But my, my opinion is that at, at one and a half percent, which means at one and a half, the dividend yield on the NASDAQ is about one and a half percent. The 10-year treasury yield uh, gets to one and a half percent. I think there's going to be a material amount of people saying, I'm going to sell something that has an astronomical valuation and buy something that's going to give me my one and a half percent and it's going to protect my capital 
for a while. Obviously, people don't invest for one and a half percent returns, but at some point, um, bonds will compete with stocks, given the returns mm. on stocks are so extraordinarily high. Okay, um, Barry, this has been amazing. I, it's you know I get to speak to you a lot, um, which always helps me in my invest investment uh, outlook and and how I think about things. So I'm so glad and thankful that you know you're willing to do this for for all of our viewers and followers. So appreciate well, I, it. Was it fun? I, I, <laughs> and it was, obviously, being less time constrained than. Uh, with the, the television shows is a big plus. And uh, I look forward to watching your next 99 shows. <laughs> Thank you. Well, you'll be on them. I have to have you as a regular and we're going to turn this into a podcast too. I, people love it, you know? So, all right. Uh, I'm really excited for you, what you're doing. And uh, if I can help, just call me. I will. Thank you so much, Barry. Have a great rest of the day. Thank Thanks for your time. Talk to you later. Okay, that is uh, Barry Allen. He, of course, is the uh, CEO of Merit Asset Management, or was the CEO of Merit Asset Management, and now has DMAT Capital. And also, of course, you can uh, take a look at his Horizon funds that he also manages. Um, it is the Horizon Active High Yield Fund and the Horizon Absolute Return Bond Fund. And of course, he's the CEO of DMAC Capital, which manages money for institutions as well as family offices. So um, hope you enjoyed um, our first uh, recording, our first interview. And as I said, it feels funny to say that given the fact that I've been doing this for 10 years, but uh, a different format and I'm loving it. So please stay tuned for more and send me any, um, any ideas, any questions you have for guests, um, areas of a focus. I've, I've gotten a few from you already, uh, quite a few actually. So I'm on it. I am on it. And um, uh, you can send them to contact C3M at gmail.com. Contact C, that's for Catherine Murray Media and Markets. That's why it's 3M at gmail.com. And um, have a great rest of the day.